Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. When I was in middle school, if a friend wanted to call me, they had to call our landline. I'm an elder millennial. No cell phones in those days. Well, one afternoon I was sitting there, and I remember this clearly. I was sitting on the couch, probably watching TV. Phone rings, mom answers, and it's my friend. So she hands the phone over to me, which is normal enough. But my friend didn't call to hang out. My friend didn't call to ask if we could hang out. My friend called to tell me he was running away. Like my friend, sometimes we get so fed up, we get so frustrated, we literally run away. It doesn't matter where, as long as it's away. Other times, though, this running away is more subtle, isn't it? We run away in our hearts, we run away in our minds. And this can happen in every significant relationship we find ourselves in. Our parents, our spouse, our friendships, our work, and yes, even Jesus. Now, it should be said, sometimes we run away in response to harmful dysfunction or even abuse done in Jesus' name. And we ought to have compassion on anyone with that story. In the Gospels, Jesus himself has compassion for those who are running away from spiritual abuse. Other times, though, we run away from Jesus because we want to call our own shots, don't we? We find that the narrow path with Jesus is a bit too suffocating. We start to wonder if life apart from Jesus is the good life, the better life. Sometimes we don't run away from Jesus in an opposite direction, but we simply stop walking behind him so that slowly we drift. We get bored. Well, we might think this is a modern phenomenon today, uh, but this is actually nothing new. I'm so glad that we are walking through the book of Hebrews together as a church because this is exactly what they were confronting. Hebrews was written to real flesh and blood people And the people behind this text that were engaging these few months, they were this close from running away. And they had their reasons, reasons that all of us do and could resonate with. See, walking with Jesus for them was going smooth, but then things got very complicated. Some theologians across church history have called this a dark night of the soul. When things external to us and things internal within us just get hard. And what happens when things get hard? What happens? Well, for me, uh, gigs is what happens. The grass is greener syndrome. You familiar with that? Here's how one writer defines this. The hallmark of the grass is greener syndrome is the idea that there's always something better that we are missing. 
So rather than experiencing stability, this author goes on, or security and satisfaction in the present environment, the feeling is there that there's more and better elsewhere. There's more and better elsewhere. And anything less will not do. Grass's Greener Syndrome has many symptoms, but one that stands out to me is what one counseling group calls the frequent need for escape. They write, quote, when your own life overwhelms you or your relationship hits a rough patch, okay? Think of Jesus, maybe. And your instinct is to impulsively leave the situation. It may be because you feel the only way to get to the greener grass is to abandon your current project and start fresh. They write. So what do you say to a friend who does call you in the middle of nowhere and says, I'm running away. I'm leaving. Or what happens to you when you yourself experience divine grass is greener symptoms? Well, Asha just read chapter 8 for us. And what the preacher of Hebrews does in that chapter, in that passage of his ancient sermon, I think is counterintuitive. I think it's shocking. And I think it's what we all need to hear. Did you notice in that passage what the preacher does? The preacher does not scold this church that is this far from running away. What the preacher does is invites them into a deeper intimacy with Jesus. How does this preacher do that? Well, before we do that, let me pray this morning, Lord. Would the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you? You are our rock. You are our redeemer. And by your spirit, would we see the beauty of Jesus this morning? Would we encounter him? in a way that would keep us and draw us deeper in. We ask this in His name. Amen. So we have walked through seven chapters now in this ancient sermon called Hebrews, and while the details, if you've been with us, can sometimes hurt our heads as we walk through this ancient sermon, the basic message I hope you've seen is simple. It's really a three-word sermon. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. And this three-word sermon builds and builds and builds, chapter after chapter after chapter, until we hit chapter 10. Later on, we'll explore this. But chapter 10, verse 19, which says, Therefore, in light of this, do this. Draw near with complete and utter confidence because of Jesus. If you want to know the Sermon of Hebrews, the Sermon of Hebrews is Jesus is better, therefore draw near. Press in. You want to run away? I know. Press further in. Maybe you are running away from Jesus this morning. You're surprising yourself by even sitting here. Or maybe you know someone who is. I know it's complicated. Maybe it's resentment. Maybe it's real harm from the church. Maybe it's a desire to just try life out without it. Maybe it's weariness because of suffering. 
Maybe following Jesus isn't exactly what you signed up for when you placed your trust in Him. I want you, like the original audience of this text, to receive this as an invitation. To receive Hebrews 8 as an invitation to draw closer. When you're tempted to run away, move in the opposite direction. And perhaps see if the very things causing you to run away are met in that exact space. Because Jesus is better. As I think about my middle school friend who gave me that call so long ago, I wonder how things could have gone differently. What if his folks in that moment didn't fight with him? But invited him into deeper intimacy? What if his parents maybe honestly owned up to their failures in that moment? Asked forgiveness? What if instead of pulling out their harshest words against their child, what if they pulled out a photo album? of times past? What if they started a fire in the fire pit? What if they cooked a meal in that very moment? I know life's not that easy, but it's as if to say, you can leave, but why would you leave? You were designed for this. We were made for this. Well, I think this is Hebrews 8, which we heard read in a nutshell. If you look, if you have your own Bibles, I invite you to look at chapter 8 verse 6 which says but as it is Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises I think this verse verse 6 is a great way to get at the whole of chapter 8 because it summarizes what came before speaking of Christ's ministry as a true priest as a true high priest And then it previews what will come after as a covenant mediator enacted on better promises. But do you notice what I notice in this text? Jesus is better. He's more excellent. He's better. He's better. Better, better, better. Jesus is better. And this is so important for us to understand because, again, what the preacher of Hebrews is doing is saying, I know you want to run away, but let's just look at Jesus. And what if you press in instead of eject out. Now I know at first glance this verse may sound completely out of touch with the things you're wrestling with this morning. But I promise you it isn't. What I want to look at are these two things. How Jesus is a better minister and how Jesus is a better mediator of a better covenant. First, Jesus is a better minister. Verse 6 says, Jesus has obtained a better ministry than the old. That's what verse 6 says. Now remember, the original audience of Hebrews was was also tempted to run away from Jesus. But they weren't tempted to run away maybe the way that we are because their options were different. So they weren't tempted to run away to atheism. They weren't tempted to run away to agnosticism or anything like that. They were tempted to run away to what verse 6 calls the old. The greener grass for them was life before Jesus. Life before Jesus. And that might be the greener grass for you too. But how is Jesus better than the old? Well, the first handful of verses of chapter 8 tell us. First of all, Jesus sits. If you take a look at verses 1 through 2 in our text. 
This is what it says. Now the point in what we are saying is this. We have a, such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now, Jesus is better than the high priest, as we saw last week. Why? Well, because we see here, he is sitting. And there's so much we can say about that simple word, he sat. But what I want to focus on this morning is this. To the original audience, that would be the best possible news. Later on in chapter 10, we read this in verse 11. Every high priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, every priest, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down, he sat down. At the right hand of God. Reflecting the language we just read. Verse 13. Waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And so we see in this even a, a, a contrast between the old and what Jesus brings. The priests of old stand daily. They never sat. So when my kids, they play soccer, there is a bench on the sidelines. And that's because when the coach sees that you're getting tired, the coach does a substitution. And they sit. They sit. To rest up and get back on the field. Well, there's no bench. There's no chair. There's no seat in the temple or the tabernacle. Because there was no time for rest. But when Jesus, the once and for all sacrifice that all of those sacrifices points to, came and offered not just another offering, but offered himself. When the sacrificer becomes the ultimate sacrifice, he could finally, as priest, sit down. Jesus is better because Jesus sits. Jesus is better, though, also because Jesus serves. If you look at the verses that follow, verses 3 through 5. We read that every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. And so it's necessary for that priest to have something to offer. And the author says, if Jesus were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to law, they serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Then the author reminds the readers, for when Moses was about to erect the tent he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. What kind of ministry is Hebrews talking about? Jesus' priestly ministry. See, Hebrews says here that the whole Old Testament sacrificial system, all of it is a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. A copy and a shadow of heavenly things. But verse 2 tells us that Jesus serves in a true tent. So in other words, the Old Testament tabernacle, the Old Testament temple was God's idea. And it was a good idea. It was grace. Because what it does is it says to all of God's people, I want to be with you. And I will make everything necessary happen for that to be true. And that's what God's house meant but here we read that that was a signpost to something better. Tabernacle, te temple, good, very good. Jesus, better. 
That's the argument. These things were a blueprint of, of a better building, a shadow cast by something more substantial. And that something more substantial is Jesus. When I was in college, I would come home for the summers and we would hang out at a friend's house. And I didn't hang out with this friend often during high school. It was a new house to me. And we were watching movies in the basement. And I noticed a study off to the side when we were done watching a movie. And I walked in there and I noticed a gigantic drafting table. And next to that drafting table were these cardboard tubes. And as I looked, I saw these amazing designs of golf courses. And that threw me way off. Like, what is going on? Turns to find out that these golf course designs will soon be, they weren't at the time, but they would soon be famous golf courses. Because my friend's dad was studying under the most prominent golf course designer, Pete Dye. And these were his blueprints. Now, as good and as beautiful as these blueprints were, they were ultimately not the point, were they? The point is to play the course. They were a copy. They were a shadow of the real thing. And the same thing could be said of the sacrificial system. Good, beautiful, designed and purposed by God. And they point us to Jesus. Who would come to sit after offering himself. As the final sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice. That all of those sacrifices ultimately pointed to. As the one who would come and serve as the true and perfect high priest who always intercedes for you, who this very moment is praying for you by name. Jesus is better. Better than anything or anyone else you can run to. And that's what Hebrews wants you to know. He's a better minister. He's also a better mediator of a better covenant. Once again, probably not what you woke up this morning thinking, you know, this is what I'm yearning for, right there. I need a better mediator of a better covenant. That's what my life is like. I'm guessing that's not what you woke up really longing for. But again, if we just sit for a minute and think about this, this is the best possible news for you this morning. How so? Well, I think first in order to understand this better covenant or this new covenant, we need to understand what a covenant even is to begin with. Right? Anybody? I mean, that's probably a good start. One British pastor, John T. Rhodes, he defines a covenant this way. An agreement between God and human beings where God promises blessings if the conditions are kept and threatens curses if they are broken. And here's the thing about covenants. The whole Bible is kind of held together by God's covenants. By God's covenant. It's like a, a linchpin. We don't often hear it talked about, though it does come up a lot in the Bible and in the story of Scripture. But if you were to pull that linchpin out, the whole machine stops working. The whole story of Scripture sort of falls apart if you were to pull out the reality of a covenant-making God. If I ask the question, how does God relate to his people? A great answer would be covenant. If I ask the question, how does God relate to you? A great answer to that question is covenant. If I were to ask, how does God relate to his people throughout the true story of the world, the scriptures? A great one answer word to that is covenant. So that all the way back in the beginning, all the way back, God makes a covenant with Adam in the garden. 
But Adam, as mediator, broke that covenant. And as you see, in a way, instead of inheriting blessing, unleashed curse. And not just for him, but for all of us. See, when I take my kids on vacation, when uh, my wife and I take our kids on vacation, we go to Michigan every year. And they don't get a vote. <laughs> they just don't. Um, it's a great place to go, gratefully for them. But the same is true with sin and death. And I'm not comparing Michigan with sin and death. I'm not, I promise. Um, as sons and daughters of Adam, we get profound dignity, okay? As sons and daughters of Adam, we get profound dignity as image bearers of God. Dignity that we are not, that can never be taken away, no matter what. But we also, because of that, did not get a vote when Adam broke the covenant. I mean, we're all on, in a sense, Adam's bus. Um, and he drove us off a cliff. Adam broke the covenant, and so do we. And we experience the consequences. As does this world. But here's the thing, the story continues, and God makes a covenant really drenched and marked by grace with Abraham. Gracious because he didn't have to do that. And also gracious because, as we would see in the story of Scripture, this covenant was ultimately not up to Abraham and God's people. It was not up to us to bring the blessings and avoid the curse. God literally tells Abraham, I'll give you my presence, I'll advance my mission through you. I will fulfill the conditions of my covenant. And I will even endure the curse on your behalf. All you must do is trust in my provision. In those days, covenants were cut. So two parties would walk through cut animals. And I know that sounds really gross. But it's as if to say, if I don't fulfill the terms of this covenant... If I don't fulfill the terms of this agreement, then may I be like the animals I walk through at this moment. So in Genesis, God cuts a covenant with Abraham. But prevents Abraham from walking through the cut animals. Instead, Abraham sees a smoking pot going through, which symbolizes God's own presence. God is saying something scandalous. I will fulfill the terms of this covenant because I cannot lie. And I am always faithful. But well, I will even endure its curses on your behalf. You need only trust in me. And God updates the same gracious agreement with Moses. And he builds on it with David. And we see that linchpin throughout all of the story. But if you've read the Old Testament, you know it doesn't end exactly with Fulfillment. There's a return from exile, but it's kind of like, eh, is this it? And you end reading the Old Testament thinking, this is a cliffhanger. There's got to be more. There's got to be resolution. Why? Why this feeling of disconnect? Well, if you look down in your text at Hebrews, verse 9 tells us why. Israel did not continue in the covenant. They stopped trusting and with that lack of trust, with that sort of turning away and even running away came lack of obedience. And all they had to do was trust the Lord, but instead they ran away. And so does God give up? Well, you would think, and especially the time that elapses between the last book of the Old Testament and the Gospels. But no, God does not give up. Through the prophet Jeremiah, God gives a hint of a major 
update to the company. It's such a great update that it can even be called a new covenant. It's the same gracious covenant, but the update is so magnificently better. It's what all of the covenants of grace were pointing to, the new covenant. So that Jonathan Rhodes, this pastor I referred to earlier, compares the covenants of grace to the, in the Bible to iPhone updates. And that's helpful for me to, <laughs> to think about. It's the same good phone. It's the same good phone. But with each update, the phone gets better. And Jesus is the greatest and final update. And we see in verses 8 through 12 exactly why that's so. This, by the way, is the longest Bible quote in your whole Bible, in your whole New Testament. It's that important. And what we see here is that the new covenant that Jesus brings is marked by deep change. God says, I will put my laws into their minds and I will write them on their hearts. Jesus changes our relationship, in other words, to obedience. We no longer obey God from the outside in, but we can obey now God by the Holy Spirit from the inside out. This is the difference between extrinsic and intrinsic motivation. As one pastor likes to describe it, it's the difference between, you know, it's the beginning of the year, January. I know many of us are running or hitting the gym. I know this is happening because I'm included in that number. Uh, it's the difference, though, between running because you are afraid of dying. It's the difference between running because you have such a goal in mind that it just consumes you and running because it just, you love running. You love the feeling of running. And I see some people like, who is that person who loves running? Running from what? But this is how Jesus changes your obedience. God doesn't coerce you to obey Him. You are in a way wooed. You see the beauty. You see the goodness. Of Jesus and His ways. The new covenant that Jesus brings is marked by real intimacy. I will be their God and they shall be my people and they shall not teach each one to his neighbor, each one to his brother, saying, Know the Lord. Why? For they all shall know me. Now knowledge in the Bible, knowledge in the Bible was not like acing your Quizlet exam. That wasn't knowledge in the Old Testament. Knowledge is like getting a hug from someone who knows everything about you and still loves you. You know them relationally. You know them personally. You experience real intimacy. And Jesus brings that to you. And he also brings forever forgiveness. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. Now how is that possible? Well, remember what a covenant is. And this is where all that work will pay off right now. Do you remember what a covenant is? It's a relationship with blessings for fulfilling the terms of the covenant and curses for breaking the covenant. Well, the smoking pot that walks through the cut covenant has put on flesh in Jesus. Jesus keeps the covenant for us. His beautiful life. If you've read the Gospels, and maybe you're here exploring the way of Jesus, and you are just attracted to Jesus. You know why you are attracted to Jesus? Because He is what it looks like when a human 
fulfills the God. It's beauty. It's gorgeous. It's a life of love. Love to God and love to neighbor. The whole law is summarized that way. And Jesus is in a way a walking covenant fulfilled. And it is beautiful. It's stunning. And so he, as a way, a second Adam, lived that life of covenant obedience on our behalf. But what's more is as we think about our life and as we think about our story, we know the ways in which we don't love the Lord and love others. We're all too familiar with the ways in which we have broken the covenant. But again, Jesus on the cross. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.